Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, I have a confession to make on behalf of the both of us to the listeners of the Tipping Pitches podcast. All right, lay it on them. I don't know what it is, so I'm a little nervous. Um, Why would you know what it is? Why would much? I prep you about the jokes beforehand? No, That's I where the, the magic dies if you prep beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> the confession uh, is, is that neither of us have ever attended the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. Oh, these guys, they get up here and they talk about baseball every week. And they've never even been to the Hall of Fame. They've never even made the pilgrimage to the religious experience that is Cooperstown. Frauds. We're frauds, Alex. Yes, in, in more ways than one, but especially uh, never having been to the Hall of Fame. And I think it'd be a lovely experience. Um, I've never cared a, a lot about, you know, the kind of minutia of the Hall of Fame, like year to year, who gets in and, and who doesn't. And, you know, uh, where you draw the line between what is morally acceptable and what is just ethically reprehensible. And I'm just like, I can't wait for you to be one of these guys that's tweeting in like 10 years. That's like, I voted for Kurt Schilling because I felt a, a, my logic compels me. Yeah. You know, I, we need some, some consistency here, right? If we're going to, if we are going to induct all the old racists into the hall of fame, it probably, make sense that we induct the new ones too, right? I guess so. The reason that I make this confession is because I, I want to go. I have nothing against the Hall of Fame. I'd <laughs> yeah. really love to go, but yeah. I've just never done it. I went to a, a concert in Cooperstown, New York once. Didn't make it over to the Hall of Fame though, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I was right down the street. Wow, that's bleak. So you've been to Cooperstown proper. Yeah, beautiful. Big rolling hills, open fields, surreal heartland. Of New York. Yeah, if you say that, I, f- I feel like I forget that it's just like in New York. Obviously, it's not like in, like just outside of New York City or whatever, but I feel like I think wow. of Co- So what you're Cooper's- saying is you forget that there's people that live outside of New York City? Is that what you're saying? Yes, I do. Upstate starts at like Times Square, you know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Upstate starts at Westchester. I, I don't actually... I have a strong opinion on where upstate starts. I know New Yorkers have plenty of feels about it. And if you uh and if you say the wrong thing, then you you might have your New Yorker card revoked. But I don't think that either of us really have a New Yorker card, to be honest. No, I don't I don't think so. Anyway, Hall of Fame. Uh the reason that I make this confession is because we got a bunch of Hall of Fame news that a bunch of places have also talked about in greater depth than you and I will. Maybe this is part of the reason why we just don't care about Hall of Fame inductions. We've just never been there. Maybe if we make a pilgrimage to there together next year, the whole podcast will be about the Hall of Fame. It'll just be like Tipping Pitches Hall of Fame edition. Yeah. Well, I think there's plenty of interesting historical artifacts there. You know, I do think that like there's a lot that I would love to see. And also... The Hall of Fame itself, just as an institution, is incredibly outdated and not suited for this current moment of honoring baseball's history. And it's making strides, as we will talk about. But 
it just has it has plenty of blind spots. Let's just say that. And it just shows them consistently year over year. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk year about that in just yeah. a second. Um, we're also going to do our third and final installment of the CBA ABCs about revenue sharing. It is the most confusing of the three topics that we have attempted to tackle, but we're joined by Nathaniel Grow, who is a professor, associate professor of business law and ethics at Indiana University. I hope I'm getting that title right. Alex gets the full title correct when we introduce Nathaniel. So hang tight if you're waiting to hear his full title that does not fit on a business card. But before we do all of that, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Baisley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches. Alex, as you alluded to in our intro, the Hall of Fame for its many flaws is making some progress. And for all of its blind spots, it does carry this sort of gravitas of dictating what MLB history is. And that picture was very unclear for a very long time. And it is starting to get clear. And part of that clarity comes from the inductions of guys like those of whom they included in the MLB Golden Age Committee or whatever they're actually calling it now, the MLB Old Timers Committee, where it's just a panel of 12 people who vote should who should be included, who has fallen off the ballot. It is not up to the BBWAA. It is up to a smaller panel as to who can be inducted after the fact, after they are no longer on the ballot. That news came out this past week. Um, six people were elected via that process. Bud Fowler, who some credit as the first African-American baseball player in organized professional baseball. Uh, he played. He last played in the 1890s, so it's very, very far in the rear view. Um, Gil Hodges, who is a legend to my favorite team, the New York Mets. He is in the Mets Hall of Fame. He played on the worst baseball team ever, the 1963 Mets, but then he managed the 1969 Mets. He's also very important to the Dodgers fan base. Uh, Tony Oliva, who spent his entire a professional career with the Minnesota Twins, a Cuban baseball player in the 1960s. Minnie Minoso, who is a Chicago was a Chicago White Sox player, but more importantly was one of the first Cuban-born players to play professional baseball in the United States and paved the way for Cuban players. Um, Buck O'Neill, who was the first baseman and manager for the the very famous and storied Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro American League. Uh, it was unbelievable that he was not in the Hall of Fame until now. Um, and then finally, Jim Cott, who uh, had a very long career as a 25-year career as a Major League Baseball pitcher. He is now a Major League Baseball broadcaster. So, Alex, uh, I know we don't talk too much about the Hall of Fame on this, but on this podcast, but um, it felt like a sort of landmark moment to watch guys like Minoso and Buck O'Neill, particularly. It feels like we are sort of in a transitional period now where the Hall of Fame is changing the way that it thinks about itself. And that has led to righting some wrongs that were extremely glaring from its past, like Buck O'Neill, like Minnie Minoso. Um, I will say that it is still not righted one wrong, which is Dick Allen, who is one just by any metric, one of the best baseball, one of the best hitters in baseball history, Philadelphia Phillies third baseman from the 1960s. He still has not made it in. He got 11 of 12 required votes to make it in. So he came one vote short. Uh, Hopefully they continue to right wrongs like they did this year in the future. And that applies to Dick Allen. It's just a shame that he's not alive to see it um, because he should have made it in 
via the BBWAA vote, but for a myriad of reasons, he was not well liked because of basically racist reasons when he played baseball. Um, so yeah, so I know we don't talk about it too much on this show, but did you have much of a response to to the, this news coming out the past week? Uh, I think my response was largely limited to it's uh, about time. These are wrongs that we didn't just come to terms with in the last year, right? Mini Minoso, uh, the the game's first black Cuban player, uh, has deserved to be in the Hall of Fame for years, right? And he he died back in 2015, just months after he and Oliva uh, failed to be inducted by the Hall of Fame. And it's it feels really bittersweet because like a lot of the other issues that we talk about with baseball, these are the, the problems that are being solved are the very ones that were created by these institutions, right? So I don't necessarily feel compelled to applaud the you know the hall of fame for coming to terms with what many baseball fans have known for a long time but i do think it is a worthy moment to reflect on the value of these players to baseball's rich history and the fact that so many of these players were some of the earliest ambassadors for baseball around the country right in the in the first half of the 20th century and even before that it's jarring to me that their names were not in the hall of fame in this capacity before that you know um i think it also kind of illuminates the somewhat archaic structure of how these players are voted in right there are various committees that uh, are, are cordoned off by the the years in which the players played right so some of these players were inducted by the the golden era committee and some of them were inducted by the the early baseball era committee. I have only so much space in my brain. I can't remember names of committees. There are I like can barely even remember like the Senate Budget Committee or whatever Senate Budget Office. I just, yeah, I can't. I don't. I don't even <laughs> really know what they do. Um, yeah, I think that that's where my head is at. Is that this is a this is a definitely a win for um, the you know, the official record, the official history of the sport, but it's only telling us stuff that we knew to be true for, for a long time now. Yeah. And I, I'm just reminded of the fact that these historical institutions of white baseball need pressure, external pressure for these changes to really come to fore. Like, I just don't think that much of this happens without the existence and the consistent storytelling of a place like the Negro Leagues Hall of Fame. Like, why wasn't Buck O'Neill in before this? I can't answer that question. I can presume because the Hall of Fame didn't give a shit about the Negro Leagues until, you know, until they were forced to. But I do know that the reason that we know that it was such a mistake for so long is because guys like Bob Kendrick and the Negro Leagues Hall of Fame more generally keep these stories rich and alive and contextualized in the present day. And so this is a huge win for them as well. And they should, they should soak in that win because, you know, just because the, the official quote unquote official record of major league baseball is telling one story doesn't mean that it's the truth. You know, it, it, there are, there are multiple histories depending on whose perspective you filter that lens through. And, it is a good thing that MLB is now filtering their perspective through 
different lenses than they used to and is open to filtering their lens through different perspectives that they used to. But the the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown is still playing catch up because of how resistant they were to this idea for so long. Right. It's been 15 years since the Hall of Fame inducted any players uh, from the, the Negro Leagues and that uh, era of black baseball, right? And as you mentioned, I think this probably doesn't happen without the external pressures of the existence of other right institutions right. outside of the Hall of Fame, you know? Right, exactly. And it makes me think of our conversation that we had with Clinton Yates last year around the the inclusion of Negro League baseball's uh, stats in the in the official record of baseball and yeah. how these players and their stats and their legacies are do not suddenly become legitimate just because they are acknowledged as such or by, different they're just the same these, these people were wholly formed human beings who were doing it separately because they weren't allowed to do it with them will be you know like right exactly and so it's they are as legitimate and worthy of acclaim as they were 10 or 20 or 50 years ago and this doesn't necessarily change that i i hope that this comes with a bit of a reckoning of baseball's blind spot it definitely felt like a like a win uh, especially in our corner of kind of the internet there were a lot of people who were really rallying for these players to get in there but you know again it's just one step yeah uh last thing on the hall of fame i'm very happy for our friend shakia taylor who's been on this podcast multiple mm -hmm. times i believe sh she might hold the title belt for most appearances on tipping pitches not named bobby and alex um who was really pushing very hard for Minnie Mignoso specifically and um, has become sort of a, a an expert on Mignoso's Hall of Fame candidacy and was doing some hits on local television and et cetera, et cetera. So congrats to Shakia for getting to enjoy that experience of seeing that news come across the timeline. Let's move on because we have a lot to get to in this episode. We have a, a, a lengthy but very illuminating conversation coming up with Nathaniel Grow about revenue sharing. Before we do kind of our general background history about revenue sharing, I want to remind people it is December. It is holiday gift giving season. If you would like to give the gift of some tipping pitches of merch that says unionize the miners or steel basis, not wages, or is a beautiful rendition of an elephant standing on a billionaire and crushing him, or a hat that says no billionaires in baseball, or stickers of any of those designs, Wow, the, the laundry list is getting long here for me to do this, Alex. Uh, the link is tiny.cc backslash nationalized to get to our store. You can use the promo code STRIKE, S-T-R-I-K-E, in all caps, for 15% off your entire purchase. We have passed the deadline for when it will be guaranteed to arrive by December 25th, but... There's always a possibility that depending on where you are in the United States, that it will still arrive before December 25th. Or there's the possibility that you just give it to the person when they arrive. Dates are a social construct. This is a, a pagan holiday now at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can't wait for... Uh, give it to someone to for New Year's. <laughs> <laughs> right, honestly. Yes. Uh, I'm very excited for mine to arrive this coming Monday so that you know we get a little quality control going we'll be able to report back to you uh whether they are indeed worth the purchase right it still might be up in the air um, <laughs> wow <laughs> all right consumer report geez <laughs> hey i want to be transparent with our with our listeners you know i god forbid we put out a product that is that is below our standards this is very true 
Um, we hope that it it holds up to your very very high standards. Uh, I know that it will. I know that it will. The good people at FII Marketing they have us down. It's and it's union made, Alex. So you can never talk shit about it. It's union made. That's so true. I mean, they really are. This isn't even marketing for the shirts, but they're so comfortable. I'm wearing one right now as we record this, yeah, and they, are. they really are enjoyable to wear around the house to a baseball game. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to receive my stickers, seriously, because then I can refresh some of the stickers that are on my laptop. You know, I can I can get a get an edgier look. You know, maybe fill it up with stickers as opposed to just one or two here and there. New tipping pitches challenge: put your sticker somewhere, send us a picture of where you put the sticker, whether that's next season during the baseball season at a MLB stadium. Don't put it on like a seat though, because then someone's gonna have to peel it off. You know, put it in a more creative place so that it'll stay forever. Uh, yeah, the, or on the door to the executive's office, the <laughs> elevator that that uh, that goes upstairs. Yeah, uh, or put it on your laptop or your water bottle and send us a picture, and we'll give you a shout out on the podcast. Uh, okay, revenue sharing time. Revenue sharing time, Alex. What is revenue sharing? Really? No, like what is it? I need you to tell me because it's so complicated. You know, I wish I could uh, illuminate this for you in a way that would be meaningful. Um, and, uh, and, and this is why we brought on some, uh, someone who's actually smarter than us to talk about yeah. what revenue sharing actually is. I and, need you to actually be here every week, not like a, getting your law degree instead. Like yeah, you can't be in like <laughs> business law 101 on Sundays when we record this podcast. I need you to be here. Yeah, I mean, so... Revenue sharing obviously came about in the the wake of the 94-95 strike that we have talked about on on these the last two episodes diving into the CBA it was it was one of the the big economic agreements that 94-95 was the big bang of the current right, labor structure it, it, it everything really came from that. Yes. It was a cultural reset as they say. Um <laughs> Yeah, you had revenue sharing, you had uh, you had arbitration, you had the luxury tax. These key issues that we are we are talking about, and revenue sharing is really the the one that was intended to address competition in the sport. Um, you know, waxing and waning levels of competition depending on uh, the market you're in, and bridging that divide between these so called small and big market teams. So each team has revenue that comes in, be it from uh, you know the national pool of TV money or your your local uh, TV revenue. All of that stuff gets pooled together and divvied out, and you you know you pay into it or receive money based on your payroll, based on the you know the what is deemed to be your market size. And while initially it was intended to kind of create this sort of economic parity. As we know, in recent years, owners have kind of wised up to the fact that they're able to pocket some of this revenue sharing money without necessarily improving the on-field product. And as we'll get into, the way that the system is set up it is such that teams are not necessarily incentivized to actually spend this money, right? You might want teams to act like a bigger market team. But if you start acting like a bigger market team, all of a sudden you're the one who's paying more into the pot, right? Those revenue sharing receipts get smaller and smaller, the better your team actually does. It's almost like baseball is not incentivizing teams to win right now. That might be going out on a limb with that though. 
Yeah. So there are these two buckets of revenue sharing. Uh, on one hand, you have the very simple system of all of the money that Major League Baseball makes as a brand, the, the office of Major League Baseball nationally. So when they negotiate national TV deals with the ESPN so that you can hear Alex Rodriguez, Alex Rodriguez's dulcet tones in your ear every Sunday night instead of your local broadcaster, all of that money, um, licensing deals for jerseys when you have to pay $129 out of pocket, that goes into the uh, one bucket. All of those things. National streaming rights, international rights, those are all included in that bucket. And then on the other hand, you have your what they call the net local revenue pool, which comes from all of the other stuff that is dictated by market. So your regional cable deal, your ticket sales, your sports book that you included (laughs) next to your ballpark, all of the stuff that is baseball related income that is specific to a team because they are a team in that city, in that market, that is local revenue and that gets split up differently. It gets split up. You pay 48% of that. I believe that Nathaniel mentioned you pay 48% of that into a pool and then it gets split up evenly among the 30 teams. So if I'm, let's just use round numbers because it's easier. If I'm the New York Yankees and I have to put I have to put $100 million into that pool. These are made up numbers. These are not the actual numbers that these teams are putting in because a big part of this is that we don't know the actual numbers that these teams are putting in, which is why it's very hard to talk about this concept. And as we'll get into with Nathaniel, why it's very hard for the players to try to fix this concept when it comes to uh, benefiting them from a collective bargaining standpoint. So if I'm the Yankees and I put in $100 million into that pool, that's 48% of my local revenue, whatever. It doesn't actually land that evenly, but whatever. For for the sake of conversation, $100 million. And if I'm the Pittsburgh Pirates and I only put $30 million into that pool, I'm obviously getting back more once we divide the revenues equally than the Yankees were. Because if the Yankees are making the most, they're going to be above the average. So they're actually going to lose money on that deal. Whereas if the Pirates are making the least, they're going to be below the league average and they're going to be making money on that deal. Does that make sense? I think so. I mean, what it sounds like is... I guess I should have said that if the league average is then 50 million. So if the Yankees put in 100, the Pirates put in 10, the league average is 50, then the Yankees have lost 50 million and the Pirates have made 40. Yeah, and this was initially intended to subsidize what these smaller market teams, the the revenues that they were going to be missing out on because they are not as attracting are, are not attracting as many fans as a team like a like the Red Sox or the Yankees or the Dodgers are doing right but in practice what that's done is given teams an excuse to not need to attract fans because if you are making less than the average in terms of local revenue but you know that the the richest 10 teams in the league are going to cover that difference for you what is the incentive to get better? You know, like they've just done the hard work for you. Go get a job, Marlon. Stop living <laughs> off the subsidization of ba- big major league baseball. The Marlins, we we don't even have time to get into this. They catch this, really. so many strays in this. They just but catch so many strays. The Marlins are such a stunning example of how broken MLB's economic system is, right? I mean, most notably back in... 2010 right when they dumped their entire roster because they didn't feel like spending money on their best player right everyone except for Giancarlo Stanton 
is basically who they got rid of. Remember when Giancarlo Stanton was on the Marlins? That's a, another topic. Um, but it got so bad to the point where Major League Baseball actually said, okay, we are going to start keeping an eye on you because you literally are like flaunting this system in our very faces. So can you make a handshake agreement to spend this money on the on-field product? And the Marlins were like, uh, sure. Yeah. We'll, we'll tell you that we'll do that. This is a, this is slight, a slight offshoot, Alex, but because you brought up the Marlins, we can go down that rabbit hole a little bit. I was listening to a, an interview with Dan Lebatard and John Skipper and David Sampson. John Skipper, the former president of ESPN, who negotiated a lot of these national TV deals. David Sampson, the former business side president of the Miami Marlins, uh, who was there since they were sold to Jeffrey Loria in the early 2000s and lived throughout the exchange of ownership from Loria to you know the Derek Jeter-led a really Bruce Sherman financially backed ownership group that owns the Marlins now. And um, with regards to like cable rights and revenue sharing, this came up in that interview and Samson, the guy running the Marlins was like, we never thought of how any cable rights deal would affect fans or viewers or our payroll. And I was like, what? <laughs> Cause he was saying like, he was saying we strictly only thought of it as will the revenue sharing check be able to like will that will that help our bottom line essentially he's saying like will this tv deal this national tv deal or this local tv deal that we sign will this make us financially liquid enough to continue to run a team whereas you know from the fan side we drive ourselves crazy talking about does making a good team or making a good league with competitiveness and keeping your players does that make you financially viable in a market and able to attract fans and bigger tv deals and all of these things and this guy was like no it's all about the revenue sharing simply put are we giving too much out in revenue sharing versus are we taking in enough in revenue sharing and i'm like geez this this is just driving me crazy yeah even not knowing the the hard and fast numbers we still kind of every few years i feel like someone illuminates how the system actually works, you know, whether it's through leaked financial documents or, or uh, you know, a, a part owner saying the quiet part out loud or what, whatever it might be. Yeah. Or SEC filings with the Braves. Like there are exactly. all these different exactly. things that we can use as clues, but we don't have really the whole picture without kind of being a detective. Yeah. But that's why we wanted to bring someone on who would actually help us break this down and really measure out what's at stake for the owners, for the players, what potential recourse the players have in changing this system, because it's, as you may be able to guess, not exactly the easiest thing to, to hammer out at the table. Strap in, we're going to talk about dissolving the union. <laughs> <laughs> and then suing MLB for antitrust law. All right, well, before we... Scoop Nathaniel too much. Let's uh, let's get to our conversation with Nathaniel Bro about revenue sharing. All right, for our final installment of CBA ABCs to talk about revenue sharing, we are joined by Nathaniel Gro. He is an associate professor of business law and ethics, and the Yormark Family Director of the Sports Industry Workshop at the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. Nathaniel, hello. 
Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. We wanted to talk about revenue sharing. Um, you've your your work has been featured in places like FanGraphs, and you've been talking kind of a lot lately about what's what's at stake during the, in this CBA, what we can kind of expect uh, over the next couple months, and some potential paths for the uh, the owners and the players to reach what they're trying to achieve in this round of CBA. Um, we wanted to talk about revenue sharing because it's kind of the final piece of the puzzle, and it is also the the most inscrutable part of the the CBA. So before we dive into it, uh, we're just kind of curious, how do you even start writing or thinking about this sort of thing, right? The numbers, I feel like, are all, they're, they're hidden behind closed doors. It's a very thorny issue as it is, and it's even thornier when you're having to pull your data from Forbes or uh, you know, Maury Brown, who we had on last week, it's a, it can be kind of a cluster sometimes. So how do you go about starting that kind of work? Yeah. So I think a, you're right that it's difficult to get precise numbers. I, I mean, my sense is too, that maybe this is lazy on my part. I don't know how much it matters exactly how precise it is. Cause I think you can get like, if you're not, it's one of those things where you're never going to have the exact numbers unless you're in the league office or probably the union, assuming that it's everything's being reported accurately, right? Like outside of those two groups, it's just not going to happen. And so at that point, the best estimates are probably going to be within pretty, you know, maybe semi-broad strokes, but pretty accurate. And so at that point, I think just kind of understanding the, the framework roughly of how it works and what's happening there. But then I think more important, just from like a basic fan perspective, is just understanding the actual ramifications of it, because I think they're complicated and, you know, I'm not an economist, but economists could model this stuff a thousand different ways all day long, right? And see, because there's so many different moving parts to tweaking that sort of thing. But I think, you know, just getting the general understanding of what's happening and why it matters is probably more important than exactly what, you know, how many tens of thousands of dollars the Royals received in, in you know, revenue sharing income right. this year. Yeah, it's more the equation than it is the actual uh, uh, end result, right? Exactly, exactly. So. Nathaniel, one of the things that we've been talking about as we've done this sort of mini-series, CBA, ABCs, we talked about salary arbitration first, then we talked about competitive balance tax, and of course, competitive balance tax is a big part of revenue sharing. Um, but But one of the ways we've been talking about these things is how they've sort of evolved over time and led to this point in history as the union and owners are negotiating this CBA and talking about some of these concepts, how the long history of them plays into, you know, animosity or plays into legal precedent within the CBA about how they're being discussed and what is really on the table versus what is probably likely going to stay the same about these systems. So I'm wondering for you, um, if you could kind of talk about as revenue sharing's formula was really introduced in the 2002 CBA, how different is it now versus how it was then? And if you could kind of ballpark it Whose direction has it gone in more versus the owners and the players? So, yeah, I, I mean, well, so I, let me hit the second part first. I think that's where it gets a little, in my mind, at least it gets a little bit complicated because it's, I, I realized as soon as I say this, this is going to totally derail in like a five minute diatribe or not diatribe, but like bring it on. You know, yeah, it's all about like, this is here. the place for it. <laughs> right. But like, I think like reasonable minds could definitely disagree on, how, on who it benefits and why. Right. So 
I think the players union standpoint, if you look historically 50 plus year perspective has been, we want the big market clubs to drive the salary scale. If the Yankees are competing vigorously in the free agent market and the Dodgers, right, if they're going to, a rising tide lifts all boats and if they start spending lots of money, it'll trickle down through arbitration and all this other stuff. But on the flip side, there's also the argument, which I think is kind of what drove a lot of it back in 2002, rightly or wrongly, was that there are competitive balance issues in the sport. But C-League was big on, you know, your small market teams need to have that hope for, you know, making the playoffs. And it hasn't worked out always the way that it was intended to, perhaps. But that some of the idea is maybe if you take some of that money from the Yankees and give it to the Pirates and the Royals, that that will allow them to obviously boost their payrolls enough that, you know, depending on, on how you look at it and how you model it, you could say that that's a net gain for the players because more money is going to be flowing to enough lower level clubs that they're going to spend more than the Yankees would have spent on that incremental revenue difference just on player salary, right? You could look at it as a negative because the Yankees are more constrained and not spending as much. There's also, a, I mean, just from an economic standpoint, you know, I think that one of the ramifications of revenue sharing, which you know, that maybe the average fan doesn't always appreciate is that it decreases the incentive to win. If you're the Yankees and every single dollar or every single win you get, you can model how much marginal additional revenue you're going to derive from that. You know, that a 95 win team is going to produce X number of millions of dollars more than a 92 win team. Then there's going to be an economic formula to determine how much more to spend to try to get up to that extra dollar value, right? But when you're taking X percent of the money off the top and spreading it around to the rest of the league, that disincentivizes the Yankees to some extent because now they're only going to get 60% of the value of that extra win. Rather, you know, if, I, that probably makes sense. So if it doesn't, I can go into it more. But I, I just think it's really complicated. And I'm not an economist. So I haven't studied enough to be able to, to definitively state for myself like where I think it comes down. And it probably varies depending on the year and you know how the money's being spent. And all of that stuff. To, to circle back to the, the original question, yeah. So back in 2002, you know, anytime you get something introduced originally, not anytime, but probably more often than not in a CBA, it's going to be a little bit more modest at first, kind of like, you know, the luxury tax was originally. It was way higher as a percentage of average revenue, right? And then it's, you know, it gets different over time. So from, from the standpoint that if you look at it, revenue sharing from this position of the players union, rightly or wrongly, that they'd rather have less of it because they'd rather have the Yankees spending more. I think you've seen more revenue sharing over the years. Again, reasonable minds could disagree. Is that just, just having more, if revenue sharing resulted in more parity, would that actually be better for the players because it makes the product as a whole, the league as a whole more attractive and TV dollars go, you know, it's, there's so many different factors. It's hard to say for sure if it's been good or bad for any particular party, but the owners definitely like it. Some of the owners, at least a lot of the owners like it. And so for that reason, it's probably fair to assume that they believe that it benefits them at the end of the day. I, I wanted to hit on that a little bit because this is one of the the issues, the the only issues, really the biggest one, where the owners actually are not necessarily on the same side about, right? There actually is some internal disagreement, but the Yankees notoriously don't love revenue sharing as you just illuminated right um the the big market teams i you know if they're going to have the the top chunk of of their payroll cut off or whatever obviously you you know you know you don't want to be subsidizing smaller market teams or whatever um and it's that that competition point that you brought up is really interesting because it it disincentivizes large market teams to go out and spend a lot but 
at the at the same time, it almost kind of disincentivizes small market teams as well, right? Because if you invest that money back onto the field um, and create a winning product and bring in more revenues, all of a sudden you're going to be getting less of that revenue sharing, right? You're going to be paying into the piece of the pie a little bit more. So I'm I'm wondering first why you think that uh, that a, you know a big market team would go along with this sort of thing is it out of the goodness of their hearts that Randy Levine says you know those royals I they they need a bit of a boost from us um, and more broadly speaking kind of how does the the legality of this sort of thing work when it comes to from the player's perspective or if you're an outside investor looking to to buy an MLB team, you know, and your your revenues might be directed elsewhere. Can you break that down for us a little bit? Sure. So um, the first part, you know, yeah, I think you're right that the Yankees don't, I mean, I wouldn't want to give away 150 million or probably more, whatever they're giving away, right? I don't think anybody would. So that makes sense. I think that if, and I think you're right that this is one of the areas where the owners could fracture and you saw that more in like the 90s. There was more of a fight between big market and small market owners during these negotiations. And the players kind of used that to drive them apart and split, you know, their, their unity. It seems like the owners are more on the same page. And it's hard to tell if they're just better messaging now and just keeping stuff behind closed doors or if they actually are all on the same page. Uh, you know, if, I, if you're the Yankees, I don't think you like it. But at the same time, I mean, they you know, some of it comes down to what sources of revenue are and are not included. So that's going to be one big factor. So I guess just to just to state it clearly, there's there's two big pots of revenue sharing money in MLB. There's all the national revenue in terms of television deals, national like licensing, you know, merchandising and stuff like that. That money all gets split equally. What we're really talking about is revenue sharing. You know, so yeah, maybe the Yankees would like to have more of that because the value of the Yankees makes ESPN and Fox pay a little bit more for the MLB TV rights. But overall, I don't think that there's as much of a fight about splitting the national television contract 30 equal slices as there would be about the local revenue side, right? So on the local revenue side, that's where you get into off the top, every team pays. I forget exactly what the percentage is. I'm trying to look it up really quick. I think like 40 something, 48% of their individual local revenues go into this big pot. And then they get divided up amongst very using various formulas in terms of some equal shares, some market size, some success, you know, all that sort of good stuff. That's the pot we're really talking about where the Yankees are going to be upset and you potentially see the competitive balance implications. And I think you're right that. The competitive balance implications cut in a bunch of different ways. And again, I think reasonable minds could disagree on it, right? Are you better off having a boatload of 88 to 90 win teams? Does that make it more exciting to have a bunch of teams cluster? Maybe not 88 to 90, but you know, 78 to 88 win cluster of a bunch of teams there with crazy playoff chases, but no elite teams. Are you better off having, you know, the historic 110 plus win teams and then a bunch of really crappy, you know, 50 win teams at the bottom, you know, it, different minds could disagree on that. Right. Ultimately the Yankees were convinced that it was in the best interest of the league to go along with this. And I, I, I I'll confess, I don't know enough about exactly. I, I don't either remember, never read about the history of exactly how that, you know, was forced mm -hmm. through, but I think that they've agreed with it, but the, on the owner's side, there is always going to be this delicate balance of the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Cubs and Red Sox could eventually just say, no, we're not going to sign off. If, you, if they can get a critical enough mass to block a CBA, they're not going to get, it's not going to get signed off on. 
just the same as a number of lower, you know, market, lower revenue teams. There's kind of these two, it, it's this weird negotiation, right? So it's kind of your question about the legality of it. The owners could not just implement revenue sharing on their own without the players agreement because it is going to affect the flow of money going to the players. It's going to have enough of a direct or indirect link to player compensation that has to be collectively bargained. Right. Once you get that collective bargaining, then you have within the union, there's going to be a fractured of free agents, you know, at lower level, you know, three, four year duration guys, you know, pre-arb guys. There's going to be a bunch of fracturing over there potentially in terms of economic interest. And you have the same thing on the owner's side. And somehow you've got to coalesce all of these moving parts and herd all the cats together to a deal that everybody signs off on when it comes in and it ties into the tanking stuff, right? Like how much that revenue sharing, how should that revenue sharing be spent? Should it go to payroll? Should it be used just to improve the quality? I forget the exact language right now, but just more nebulous, like improving the quality of the organization generally, right? Like those are all the fights that all get tied into this. And again, there's so many different strings you could pull on here. It makes it really hard to, unless you're really in the weeds on it, to, have a good sense of if you tweak this one little piece here, what happens? Cause it's just, there's so much going on and so many moving parts. So it sounds like they should be able to clean this up quite easily in the coming, <laughs> in the coming weeks. Uh, very straightforward stuff. A couple di- couple hours. Yeah. <laughs> just get at the table and hammer it out. Right. Uh, I wanted to ask you something though, that you hit on at the end there, where the, the idea of where the revenue sharing money goes, once it gets delivered to smaller market teams, I think that, you know, at the time it was messaged as by Bud Selig and other smaller market owners as if we get this money from revenue sharing, we can reinvest it onto the field. And then that way we can compete with the bigger markets that will be better for everybody, primarily fans of the smaller market teams. They will have a chance. Bud Selig obviously came uh, as being an owner with the Brewers, a smaller market team. Um, let's set aside the fact that like smaller markets are sort of a sort of a myth these days with the way that TV regional sports networks work and regional cable deals work. Let's just say, you know, that that was the agreement at the time um, on on principle, if not necessarily on paper. And it seems like the smaller market owners have sort of gone away from that. We see ridiculously low payrolls for teams that do not want to win in this whatever competitive window that they're, uh, you know, arbitrarily deciding. Um, What is the actual ability of the players to grieve something like that if it's not actually written into the CBA um, I know that there is a lot of like, it is up for interpretation when you grieve something to the arbitrator who actually looks into it and and determines via like what was actually passed across the table during negotiations and what was the intent of these different clauses. Um, do you think that they would have compelling cases to say this money is, this revenue sharing plan is actually not being executed the way that it was? And would that give them leverage in this current negotiation? Yeah, so it's... Well, as soon as you started saying that, I was thinking back. There is a grievance. I think it's still pending um, about against the murmur at the Marlins and the Pirates. And I'm just googling it really quickly to see if that has been. I do not see any recent updates. So I think that that's still pending. Pirates raise and Marlins over. So the union did make basically the exact argument that you were kind of you know premising there of that the team that some low market, some low revenue, small market teams are not spending that money in accordance with the terms of the CBA, that they're not actually using it to improve the major league team sufficiently. And I think 
you know, this isn't anything super, I mean, especially to your audience, probably this isn't particularly insightful, but the $64,000 question is, you know, are they or not, right? Like you could make an argument that the Rays are actually probably investing that money in ways that are allowing them to be more competitive on the playing field than just throwing it at, you know, aging 30 something plus middle relievers, right? And so I think that that, you're right that ultimately an arbitrator is going to have to decide that, like, what does that language mean? What should it mean? Should it just mean player salary or should it mean investing in, you know, industry leading, you know, IP and tech and all the, you know, all the quants and all that stuff in the backside? Does it include, you know, the minor league system, you know, investing in the best player development system rather than spending it at the major league level? So again, you you can have a whole, you know, everybody who's listening to this probably has their own opinion on, you know, whether that's being used appropriately or not, but that's ultimately where that fight's going to come down to. Again, not to ramble too long, but it does tie back to this CBA again, because there are going to be big market owners who are going to be pissed at why are the Pirates and the Rays spending so little right now, whatever it is, you know, the Max Scherzer's making more per year than the Orioles collectively or whatever currently, (laughs) right? Like, that's a bad look for if you're the Yankees again and writing $100 million checks all the time to cover this stuff. So it's definitely going to be a pressure point, I think, within the ownership, you know, negotiating side and then collectively once you bring the players into the mix too. What do you think it would look like to actually have a more transparent revenue sharing system? You know, like, is there a, again, this is the, like, this is the question, but how do you actually compel teams to, to uh, spend that money in ways that are deemed as being a, uh, you know, improving that product? Does it really just come down to whoever happens to be sitting at the, the, you know, in the arbiter's chair that day or are there ways to you think um, link them to to wins to team performance or something like that? Right, like encourage those those teams that are kind of in the middle, maybe on the verge of being competitive, to say, well, you can actually get more revenue sharing money if you actually show that you're making a a good faith push to win baseball games. Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's a lot of different ways. I mean, it's, it's innumerable different ways you could try to crack the nut, right? So you could say. In the CBA, any revenue sharing, I mean, they're never going to say this, but any revenue sharing dollar that a team receives has to go to player payroll. And then as long, I mean, I guess then you still get into a fight of, well, I'm still I'm making $60 million in revenue sharing and I'm spending $60 million on payroll. So it all is. And, I'm probably, you know, you would quibble with the formula, you know, that also you have to spend at least X percent or something. But the players aren't going to want to go for anything that sets like salary floors because they're worried that that's going to be a precursor to a cap. The owners aren't going to want to really tie it too directly because, yeah, the Yankees might be pissed that the Pirates aren't spending very much of their money on major league payroll. But on the other hand, if you start having the bottom 10 or 12 teams increase their payrolls by tens of millions of dollars a year, that's going to increase, you know, upward salary inflation that's going to affect the mid and large market teams, right? So, again, there's this balancing and delicate ballet of... We wanted them to do this, but we don't want them to do it too much. And, you know, there's, there's again, so many different ways to look at it. It becomes complicated. But I think your idea, you know, you could tweak it in terms of draft. You know, people, a lot of people are talking about draft order and trying to fix, you know, some of this that way. You could tweak it with more revenue sharing for the closer you get to 500 or the closer you make it to the playoffs, you get more. You could, there's a bunch of different ways you could go at it. Again, I... I'm sure that both sides have economists who've modeled all that like a thousand different times. But um, from the outside, you know, I think that there's more efficient ways that those pro- that those those passages of the CBA could be written if the concern is really to drive the small market teams to spend 
more money on major league payroll. Which may be up for debate, honestly. Yes, right? exactly. That's, <laughs> the jury's still out on that one. Exactly. Do you think this is a losing battle for the players? Because as we've talked about so far, it's very unwieldy the way that these teams bring their revenues in. It's it's very hard to decide what pressing one lever might do to another lever and whether that might just crop up a completely different problem that they had never foreseen. Do you think that they are just chasing, the players are just chasing their own tail by trying to perfect the revenue sharing formula? Because Major League Baseball has proven that the owners are always going to find revenue streams. If it's not TV this time, it's going to be sports betting or whatever, or it's going to be streaming if they ever actually iron that out in a way that becomes profitable for them in the long term by partnering up with the NBA and NHL or whatever they decide to do there. So do you think that the players are wasting some of their capital at the table trying to solve a system that the owners are going to give them the runaround eventually anyway? That's a good question. Um, My instinct is to say no because I don't know what choice they have. Like once the, the the player's problem is that they've agreed to all this stuff. And it's really hard to claw that back now, right? Like, I mean, I know this isn't the CPT luxury tax episode, but like, you know, once they go down that road and then once they repeatedly fail to raise those thresholds high enough and just ignore it, it's a lot harder to fix that down the road, right? Same thing with the revenue sharing. If you let it, you can't just say, no, we're never, I mean, they could, the players could say, we're going to sit out until there's no more revenue sharing, right? Good luck with that. I think from a PR optics standpoint, the public, that's one easy way to get the public to turn. Because I think the average fan is going to think, oh, this is helping competitive balance is what the NFL does. This is good for sports. And again, your reasonable minds could differ on that. But I don't think that that's a PR position I'd necessarily want to take from the players that we're going to torpedo the entire 2022 season because we want to undo all revenue sharing, right? So once you're down that road that you have to deal with it, I think you got to deal with it and just try to do your best guess at what's going to be most beneficial for your for your membership on the I mean there's also then just the pragmatic reality of from the players you know from the players perspective and again without being in the room it's hard to know exactly how all these pieces are fitting together but right. hey maybe we take Bobby's point that this revenue sharing stuff it's all kind of a wash anyway if there's something that we get the sense the owners really want to tweak about it let's just fight that a little bit to get leverage for the thing we you know maybe we can bump the minimum salary up from their proposal i don't know what the current proposals are but seven hundred thousand, and we can get it to 850 if we just cave on this revenue sharing thing that we think is kind of a wash at the end of the day so it's a central enough to the economics of the league i would say that i wouldn't just punt on it if i were the players um, but I don't know if I don't know if they're going to meaningfully, you know, affect, you know, in a huge way their their current financial position by getting the a realistic compromise on a on a different solution. You mentioned the the NFL having revenue sharing. Do you, are you able to kind of illuminate what the difference is between baseball's revenue sharing model and kind of? I mean, when I when I think of it, I don't believe that these arguments are happening among NFL players and fans and owners right i mean the 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 top and the bottom of the league are so more closer together that it almost doesn't feel like an issue right so like why is baseball so uniquely uh i guess unable to really come through with a with a system that actually um that actually works for the players for the teams for the for the fans you know it's because of the lack of a sour cap so in the nba the nfl the nhl 
there's a set formula of what the cap's going to be and there's going to be a floor, right? And so I, I don't remember off the top of my head exactly. I think most of them are around 50-50 right now. Players and owners share the revenue, right? So in a different league, the CBA negotiation unfolds very differently because there's a debate about, okay, what's going to be basketball-related income, quote-unquote BRI, right? And then once they agree, oh, this new gambling revenue is part of that, right? The jersey patch is, but the hotel that the team just opened next to the arena is not, right? Once you have that fight about what is basketball money, what's you know outside basketball money, then it's just a second fight about what percentage of that basketball-related money is going to be guaranteed to go to the players via the salary cap and the salary floor. And so and it, the, the second part of it is, vis-a-vis NFL versus MLB, NFL, I mean, the television contract's $10 billion, right? I mean, it's just, they don't even have to sell a ticket and they're going to make a profit every single year just from the television contract. And whereas in baseball, it's so much more ticket sales driven and local television revenue driven that you have this fight more because there is just an inherent, I mean, yeah, sure, the New York Jets and Giants might be at some advantage over the Cincinnati Bengals in terms of local, you know, merchandising and parking and all that stuff. But the vast, you know, it's, it's more minor incremental differences where compared to the Yankees versus the Marlins or the Yankees versus the Royals or something like that. So, it, you know, from the player standpoint, again, I don't mean to keep rambling, but they've always said, we don't want a salary cap. We want this quote unquote free market. It's not a real free market because there's all these rules about when you become a free agent, all that stuff, right? But we want the free market to decide player salaries. The downside of that then is once you start opening up those roads where we're going to have a luxury tax, we're going to have revenue sharing, that now affects that. It's manipulating that free market. And now you've got to wade into all these battles that the other sports don't really have to worry about as much of how the owners share their revenue. They don't. The NFL players don't care how the NFL owners share their 50% of the revenues because they're guaranteed their half of the, of the pot. Yeah. I mean, in discussing this, it just, it strikes me how how ironic it is that the owners are so aligned in, in comparison to the much larger bargaining unit of the players in in whatever league, not even just specifically about MLB and how we conceive of the owners as being these sort of, you know, billionaires being divisive and trying to break it up so that they can, you know, get their slice, get, you know, exorbitant profits when it comes to these sports leagues or whatever industry that they're in. But they are extremely aligned and that has given them such power in these collective bargaining sessions and when the CBAs run out. Um, I think the last thing that we wanted to ask you about really quickly was, do you think is the MLB's antitrust exemption, does that come into play at all with something like revenue sharing or does that come in, how does that come into play with the way that these teams are or are not allowed to play that card when players are saying, you know, like you're illegally colluding against us for lack of a better word yeah so short so the short answer is yes and no which (laughs) is like a total (laughs) lawyerly answer um so i'll try to give you like the the foot like 30 second elevator pitch version of it so the short answer is theoretically it comes into play but not really so once the cba has been entered so up until december 1st the players could not sue the owners because they were involved in under antitrust law because they were involved in a collective bargaining agreement and a collective bargaining relationship. Any grievance that they had had to go through the channels that were specified in the CBA, which is what MLBPA did last year with the whole COVID, you know, resumption issue. And when they're upset about the Marlins and the Rays and all that, once the once the CBA has expired and the owners have locked the players out 
Now, at this point, the players have a choice of how do we want to respond to that. The players can continue to negotiate, which they have for reasons we can discuss if you want to for right now. Or the players could say, let's file an antitrust lawsuit against the owners. In this case, they wouldn't necessarily be challenging the, the revenue sharing. They'd agree to that in a CBA. So it's kind of sanctioned and exempted from antitrust law once the players agree to it. Now they could say the whole lockout's illegal. If you continue to try to share revenue without an active CBA in place, once we've dissolved our players' union, then they could file a lawsuit on that grounds. But again, as I just hinted at, that would require the players to say, we're dissolving the MLBPA. We are going to go out without a unionized relationship anymore. And at once there's no union, the league 30 teams cannot work together to set all these policies that are going to be anti-competitive and affect the players. And then you get into a whole big, nasty antitrust lawsuit. Um, so does, anti- does MLB's antitrust exemption not exempt them from a lawsuit like that? I I'm, I'm guess I'm just a little bit confused as to how in MLB, when, where they have the antitrust exemption versus other leagues, like we've seen the NFL Players Association do this, dissolve their union to great success in the late 80s. And similarly, the NBA used the threat of doing this against the owners in 2010 to get you know, a slight, slightly better CBA. You can, reasonable minds could disagree about how good the NBA CBA is for certain players, but does the antitrust exemption not prevent something like this from, from working or being received in a court? So, yeah, so there is an antitrust exemption that the courts have made throughout the Supreme Court from 22 to 72 reaffirmed. In 1998, following the 94 players strike, once the players and the owners agreed to a new deal in 95, part of that deal was that the two sides agreed they would lobby Congress to file or to pass a, a piece of legislation that would partially repeal baseball's antitrust exemption to allow the players to file an antitrust lawsuit in the future should they want to do so. So there's this thing called the Curt Flood Act. It was enacted in 1998. Mm-hmm. It's the most, if you, if you look at it, if you want to like, it's just like there's so many special interests were involved in it. So if you read it, it's just the most convoluted thing. But basically <laughs> what it says is... It's America, a, baby. Exactly. If you're a current Major League Baseball player, you and you alone have the legal ability to file an antitrust lawsuit against the owners. The reason the owners were willing to go along with it is they knew that the players would have to dissolve their players' union. There's a whole, in the NFL context, a Supreme Court decision in 1996 that said as much. And I think the owners just said, yeah, what, like the odds of that really being game, you know, game determinative in any future labor dispute, whatever. Yeah, we'll, we'll sign off on that. And so because of that Curt Flood Act, now baseball players are in the same position. They've never done it before, but that the NFL and NBA and NHL guys are, that they could decertify if they want to, to file that antitrust lawsuit against the owners. I see. So Max Scherzer can sue Major League Baseball for antitrust purposes, but the city of, of San Jose cannot when they want to move the A's to San Jose. They lose that because of MLB's antitrust exemption. Okay, that I, that I understand now. Okay. Exactly. And I mean, yeah, Scherzer could if... The union is dissolved. Scherzer could not right now, as long as the MLBPA remains an active labor union. Yeah. Right. Do you think that the players would actually consider that sort of thing? Right. Because it feels like, I mean, it opens up a lot of possibilities um, to, uh, you know, p- for potential recourse in some of these issues that we're talking about, but it's also a little risky, right? Because, I mean, the, the MLBPA is a relatively strong union and you're sacrificing a lot if you, if you dissolve that and decide to go through the courts instead. The MLBPA thinks it's a strong union, right? Like, so there's, <laughs> which I think, and I don't mean to say it's not, but I think that if you look at the last few, I, 
the 2016, I don't know what you guys' personal opinions are on it. The 2016 deal, they did, I think in hindsight, they would almost unanimously agree it was a bad deal, right? And so like would the strongest union sports have agreed to such a bad deal that went haywire so quickly? I, you know, reasonable minds can disagree. Historically, it's been considered the strongest players union. I think that they still very much have that view of themselves, right? So I think that that just in and of itself makes them less likely to say, let's dissolve the union and go out on this different path. There's other factors right now. They do have some of these active grievances like the revenue or the revenue sharing one, like the COVID resumption one. If they dissolve the union, those kind of go away. And so part of yeah. the, the inside baseball leverage calculations is do we think that the COVID resumption grievance is so strong that, you know, what are our probabilities of winning that? It's worth $500 million. Let's say we think it's we've got an 80% chance of winning that we value that at $400 million. What's the antitrust lawsuit going to be valued at? What do we think our odds are of winning that, right? You can just do some back of the envelope calculations pretty quickly. And at some point, the one will out surpass the other. And basically, the, the value of the antitrust lawsuit with A, there's a slight chance it's the NFL did not, the NFLPA was not able to successfully do this, but there is a chance that the court could enjoin the lockout. They could say, owners, you can't do this. You have to let the players come back to work, which shifts the leverage in the you know bargaining posture and everything. Yeah. More likely is once paychecks stop, the players would argue that you owners are illegally group boycotting us. You're refusing to pay us. McDonald's, Wendy's, and Burger King could never just all agree to say, let's not pay our French fry fryers until they agree to take you know some low wage, right? And we'll just no one will lose sales because we'll all just agree not to sell French fries until, as an industry until these workers come to you know uh, acquiesce to our demands. It's kind of the same logic of what's going on in baseball, right? Long story short, every paycheck missed then would be tripled in value if they were ultimately successful in proving that the lockout was an illegal group boycott. And so at some point, April, May, June, July, the value of an antitrust lawsuit times triple the amount of wages that have been lost is going to outsurpass that, the whatever the value of those grievances is. The union does lose a little bit of control over stuff. To, you know, if they feel like the players are really fractured, they cannot just say we speak as one voice anymore. Now it's a thousand different players who are all free to say whatever they want. And you could get the owners working with a group of players that are, you know, that they view as, hey, let's woo these, you know, pre-arb guys with a million dollar minimum salary and get them to sign off on something that, you know, is really disastrous for the rest of the membership. And if they can get to a 51, 50 plus 1% of the pool that way, they could almost, you know, work around Tony Clark and company because there yeah. is no union anymore. And they don't have to do that. So from the union's perspective, there's upside and downside and NBA and NFL, you saw that it didn't, it, it helped the players a little bit. Within a couple of weeks or a couple of months, there is a deal that was probably slightly more favorable. But I don't, unless the players are saying we're taking this to the mat and, you know, 2022 be damned, we'll, we'll cancel the season over this. I don't know if they're really going to get to the point anytime soon that they think the risk has outraised the reward on it. So then in that circumstance, and I know that we're kind of taking this down the rabbit hole, but this is, this is something that has not come up on the show, despite the fact that we talk about the union a lot. Um, in that circumstance, then you just reform the players' union after that, after the antitrust has kind of been heard by the courts and gone through, you would just presumably go back to an MLB Players Association and you would file for a union the same way through the NLRB that you had to do it the first time around? Yeah, as well. So it's, it's even more complicated. So there's two different ways they could do it. So there's what's called a decertification 
which requires a formal vote of the players saying that we no longer want to be represented. And if you decertify, you can't reform a union for 12 months, and then you have to do a new certification election. The alternative, what the other players' unions and the other leagues have done is what's called a disclaimer of interest, which is basically Tony Clark firing off a letter saying, hey, we no longer wish to represent our players. We are now ending the collective bargaining relationship. That immediately then, in the player's perspective, triggers the ability to file an antitrust lawsuit. At that point, once a deal is reached, two days, two months, whatever later, the same you'd get a quick roll call vote of the players, say, we would now like to reform our union to sign this litigation settlement agreement that we've reached in the form of a new CBA and therefore re-implement the union. And so the players have always wanted to do that de- that disclaimer of interest because it's, it's like a light switch. You can, I'm, I'm unionized, I'm not, I'm unionized, I'm not, I'm unionized, I'm not, right? They can go back and forth as it, as it suits them. The owners say that's complete bullshit. Like you shouldn't just be able to manipulate it like that. If you really want to do this, decertify the union and then sue us, but show that you're actually committed to it, not just using it as a negotiation tactic. No court's ever ruled, as far as I know, on that issue of do you have to do the formal vote decertification, can't undo it for 12 months to be able to sue, or is a disclaimer? All those cases settle before you ever get to a point where court's really been called on to answer that question. Nathaniel Grow. Helping us break down the Wait, the the glamorous Alex, part of this. Okay, okay. Go, I have go, go. one more small question because we have Nathaniel here, and because we're talking about decertifying the union and then reforming the union, because we are tipping pitches and we are the unionized the minor leagues people. How would that play into this? If they decertified the union and then reformed it, could you change the membership? Like, if they wanted to do the knockdown drag out fight and try to get minor leaguers involved in the Major League Baseball Players Association. Or is there something that bars them from being able to change the recognition agreement of who is in the union? That's a good question. So, a let me pick. Let me preface this by saying I'm not a labor law scholar, so I do not know the ins and outs of every detail of that. Mm-hmm. Also, preface by saying the MLBPA is never going to want the minor leaguers in there because there's no financial advantage. So they're much better off screwing the minor leaguers and getting a larger share of the revenue for their members, right? But the, I think that. They, I believe, but I'm not 100% sure that they could do that either way. If they wanted to reformulate, I mean, if they decertified, that might then come down to part of that then litigation settlement agreement. So there's now a lawsuit. Yeah. Now the litigation council is negotiating with the council for the owners. They kind of phrase the settlement as a new CBA. Will you agree to drop this lawsuit if we agree to a revenue sharing plan that looks like this and a minimum salary that looks like this and arbitration and all yada, yada, yada. If the player said, oh, by the way, we want every single professional player now to be in our union, the owners, my guesses would say, yeah, screw that. We're not, that changes everything, right? Like, or then that deal looks totally different. And are, is the union still confident that it can get sign off from a majority of its members? The union could always expand if it wanted to. I, I mean, I think if, the, if, the, if a majority of the players said, yes, we want to represent all the different minor leagues and have just a collective professional baseball player, you know, organized baseball union, I think they could do that, whether it's after they dissolved or just reformulate, I believe, I mean, maybe not during a currency, I mean, but one way or the other, I think they could do that if they wanted to, there's just not really any incentive for the, for the major leaguers beyond, you know, just out of the kindness of their hearts to, to want to do that. It would immediately become the only thing that they were bargaining over. You'd have to do it once the CBA was expired, right? Because the recognition agreement dictates who is covered by that CBA and what, you know, 
job titles. In this case, it's just the job title of Major League Baseball player. But what job titles are included in there? And that would, um, you know, that would be like the knockdown dragout fight. I guess they could do it without decertifying the union. But I was just curious to, from your perspective if, like, you know, decertifying the union would give them more of a legal case to include them after recertifying it. But so I think I think that the difference. So I guess again I'm speculating here. My one read on that might be that the difference would be if it's a formal decertification, you then have to have a whole new vote to form a brand new union. It would be probably easier to kind of reframe things versus if it's a disclaimer. I believe it would have been the former union members would be the ones to vote, and so the presumption would be it would be the same. Yeah, membership, right? Um, I, I can't even imagine an MLBPA with all the minor. It would be everywhere. We're talking about you know differences between Scherzer and you know a pre-arbitration guy and a mid-level free agent. Just imagine you know rookie level you yeah. know eight ball guys in the mix to negotiate. It would be a total disaster from a <laughs> getting a deal done perspective. Even if it might help the minor leaguers themselves. Yeah, we're very far down the hypothetical. Sorry to, yeah. to push us further down, but I was just I, I occurred to me and I had to ask it. So Alex, sorry I introduced interrupted your uh, your outro there. No, not at all. Nathaniel, thank you for joining us, uh, helping us break down the most glamorous part of, uh, of the sport we all know and love. Um, before we let you go, do you want to just um, plug where people can find you, find your work, anything else uh, before we let you get out of here? I'm good. Uh, no, not really. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thank you to Nathaniel Grow. Thank you to you, Alex, for all of your wonderful insight into the collective bargaining of Major League Baseball. Thank you to the listeners for coming along with us on this CBA ABC's journey. I know that we get very in the weeds sometimes, and this series is an example of us going further into the weeds than we really ever ever have in this episode specifically. But I hope that it's a good jumping off point if you're trying to get as much context about some of these labor fights as possible. Um, we, of course, only identified really three concepts and the last two interact a lot, CBT and revenue sharing. But that's because these are kind of the the ones that are most up for debate at the moment. There are a lot of other things about like player benefits and travel and like salary cap and salary floor, which are not in the CBA, but of course are like these this third rail that runs along all of these conversations that we didn't focus a whole episode on because I don't really anticipate them changing too much in this CBA. But if they do, we will, of course, talk about them in the course of news that trickles out about collective bargaining and what's going on. Speaking of that, no news is trickling out about collective bargaining. <laughs> it doesn't seem like they're doing that right now. <laughs> See they're, in the new year. for the holidays, <laughs> right? Rob Manfred's visiting his family. What is he going to do? Negotiate through the end of December? No. Well, you can't just like lock them out and then just like keep negotiating the next week because then why did you lock them out at right. all? Right. What was the point it, of it? That? It has to be a whole like it has to be the whole show and everything. It has to be like this this like medieval jousting tournament where you like touch spears in the middle and then walk to right. your corners and then yeah, it has to be it's all about pomp and circumstance. Yeah. A billion dollar game of chicken, you know. Basically. <laughs> Anything else that we need to tell the Tipping Pitches listeners about, Alex? Anything coming up that you want to hint at? Yes, just a couple of things. Before we get out of here, uh, I'm really excited for our episode next week. We're going to be uh, talking about this, this CBA fight and 
labor in baseball and sports, uh, taking a little bit of a different angle and talking about media. It's it's uh, the Tipping Pitches Media Criticism Power Hour, which we have not been able to to really get into as of late, but that's kind of our bread and butter, you know, that's, that's the sound of me blowing the dust off my journalism degree, bro. Let's go. Oh <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, so we're going to be bringing a guest on for that. I'm very excited. Also, we recently went on the working people podcast, which is, uh, which is a podcast about labor that is in partnership with in these times mag and real banner moment the, for me. I love that. Real podcast. News. Yeah, <laughs> it's also like it's weird to be on a podcast that I listen to all of the time, right? <laughs> so that was a uh, we did kind of a cursory look at uh, what is at stake in the CBA fight and how it relates to the broader labor landscape in the country today. So we had a really great time going on there. Keep an eye out for that; it should be out in the in the coming days. And in the and, future, uh, we'll be doing a bonus episode with working people as well, where we get into some of the more the wider concepts less about the the here and now and more about the baseball labor landscape and what it means in the wider context of american capitalism um that'll be a bonus episode uh that you can access if you're a patreon member of working people go check out our our mini appearance that will be on their regular feed in the next day or two um and then decide if you want to come for the the bonus pod as well and as we said up top snag a shirt they're cool I'm I'm excited about them. Tiny.cc slash nationalize. Use that code for you listeners only. It's nowhere else. This code has not been posted online anywhere. It is just for you, the person listening to this right now. Aside Strike. from the fact that this podcast is distributed via online. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Basically, he's saying it hasn't been on Twitter. You know what? If someone makes the plunge to actually press play... Uh, on one of these episodes they that's deserve. they they deserve those 50, that 15 percent off so strike s-t-r-i-k-e hit that up fill that cart thanks for listening everyone we will talk to you next week people call you a they want to teach you how to party first thing they say is great sex hello everybody uh i'm alex rodriguez tipping pitches tipping Pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya!